Welcome to wherever you are. My name is Ryan McNeil in Toronto, Canada. You are listening to episode 251 of the Matinee Cast. It's the movie loving podcast of my movie loving website, thematinee.ca. Your home for cinematic passion and perspective. So this is the new year. It's the point on the calendar where people try to give a renewed effort to things or work on bettering their life. Perhaps the idea is to read more or to eat less. Perhaps you're quitting a bad habit or you're trying to instill some new good ones into your routine. Whichever avenue you choose, January always comes with new efforts, new hopes, new beginnings. Usually. I know this January seems like far less of that, but really and truly, January, new stuff. Around these parts, January has come with new voices. Since I felt like it was high time, I started looking for new guests for this show. And folks, I am really excited about the guests I have brought in for today's show, because not only do we share many of the same geeky passions for film and pop culture, but we're even in the same town. When I had the idea to have her on the show, my first instinct was to invite her out to meet some of the other local movie nerds and have a drink. But we can't do that right now, so we're having our first sit-down live over the miracle of the internet on this show. She is a writer at Comic Book Debate, Geeks of Color, and The Real Write-Up, and I'm really excited. Brittany Murphy is here. How are you, Brittany Murphy? I'm good. I'm happy to be on this podcast. When you reached out to me, I was actually really excited because I was like, wow, someone from Toronto and, you know, I get to talk about nerd stuff with. So I'm here for it. (laughs) You might be the first person ever to say I was excited to be on this show. So after 250 episodes, I think I'm doing something (laughs) right. Nice. Thank you. I'm welcome. I'm really, really glad you were here. Really, really glad you were able to make it after a long workday, too. So uh, props and thank you. On episode 251, we'll be discussing wonder woman 1984 i'll be turning the record over to play the other side but first we need to learn about britney this is know your enemy Apparently, you've heard some of this and know how it goes, um, and you are a first-time guest, so you get the the opening batch of questions. What is the first film you can remember seeing in a theater? So the first film I ever watched in theater was the animated Lion King, and it's one of the things that my mom always loves to rehash the story, because after, obviously, the opening song and the opening scene that I'm sure most of the people, at least I would assume most of the people listening have seen the animated Lion King at least once. She's always like, you just looked up at me and was like, thanks, mommy. So she <laughs> loves to tell this story. And yeah, it's, I mean, till still to this day, one of my favorite movies. I don't think of it that way that often, but as far as an introduction to a movie is concerned, that's Circle of Life has got to be up there. Right. It's like so much spectacle, so grand, so colorful. And it's, and of course it's a song, but Mm -hmm. you know, I I guess maybe because it, uh, you know, it came out when I was a little bit older, which is to say I was a teenager by the time it came out. I don't think about it in, or, or because it's a cartoon, perhaps I don't think about it in that capacity, but yeah, as far as like introducing somebody to like the wonder of cinema, it's, it's gotta be, it's high it's much higher up there than a lot of people give it credit for i would agree i feel like even still to this day it's one of the better animated films because obviously there's ones that have music ones that are just you know no music but i feel like this one does a really great job like the songs are great the cinematography is great the animation is great so it's just a lot of great things all together 
Yeah, it was it was Disney, you know, when they were when they were clicking on all cylinders, when they really got their got their stuff together after a few years of wandering out in the wilderness. Was this here in Toronto? Yes, I believe that it was at well, now it's the Queensway Cinema, but back then when I would have watched it, it was across from Sherway. Sherway Gardens. Yeah. Oh my god, I remember that theater fondly. I saw so many movies there because uh, I uh, I went to school and worked in the West End growing up. So yeah, I've got that that uh, you know that that's a theater that's on the other side of a very large parking lot. It was I think it was something like ten or twelve screens. Yeah, 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 and. Um, I always seem to remember like a lot of kids like that was I think it was because because it was across from the mall because it was out in the suburbs and because there was that huge parking lot and you could easily drive to it. It was the kind of place that really, really, you know, had either like families going to it or like a bunch of like school kids would go after school. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, that's not a bad place for a good for a movie. Right. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay. You're taking me back here. And, and you're making me feel old all at once. So <laughs> good start to the show. All right. Um, on the flip side of things, what is one of the last movies you watched before this show that's not Wonder Woman 84? I actually watched a few days ago, again, one of my favorite animated films, uh, The Prince of Egypt. I watched that two nights ago. Yeah. Which I've actually never seen. My only real knowledge of Prince of Egypt is... The song that's got the that's got the Whitney and Mariah song, right? Yes, exactly. But I feel like this is a movie that people know a little bit less than maybe they should. I would agree with that. Like the reason why I decided to rewatch was because I was on Twitter and there was something like someone was tweeting about different like Disney animated films, and I was just thinking to myself, I'm like, what are some things that were non Disney that were animated that were actually really good that may have like you know slipped through the cracks or perhaps were overshadowed? I guess because obviously Disney has like such a, I guess I will say a monopoly over animated films. Um, so when I posed the question, I put my four like favorites, which included Prince of Egypt. So I was like, well, clearly it's time for a rewatch, but I feel too, like there's a lot of great songs and animation and spectacle within the movie. And I saw this in the theater as well when I was younger, I think it came out in 1998 or 1999. Um, so it was probably again at Sherway. At Sherway. <laughs> Lots um, of shout outs to Sherway Gardens on this show. It's great. Right. Um, but it's just such a good movie. Like, I know there's some people that may say stray away from it because it's, you know, religious based. Um, but it's, I feel like it's one of those things where religious or non-religious, like, it's just a good movie in general. Like, the voice performances are great. There's so many good people in the cast like ray fines patrick stewart helen mirren michelle pfeiffer jeff goldblum sandra bullock like there's a lot of people in the cast um and it's just honestly it's just really really well done like i would like to see it maybe made into like a live action i know that they started the actual broadway like not on broadway but the musical version started in the uk but i'm assuming obviously now it's closed because of the pandemic Um, But when I was in the UK, um, at the end of January, I actually considered if it fit into like my timing to try and go see it. Unfortunately, that did not happen. Oh, man. Um, Right. I was like, oh, it's so close. It's right there. And I'm like, at this rate, who knows when it will ever come to like, you know, one of the Mervish theaters here. 
But yeah, it's just really well done. One of my favorite scenes is the parting of the Red Sea. The way that they filmed it was so great. Like you could see different sea creatures, like, you know, like their silhouettes, like swimming through the water. Like it was just, it's really good. I wish I had seen it in like IMAX because that's the kind of place where you should see it because it's so big and grand. But I really love that movie. It's it's crazy because as I'm as I'm reminding myself of the, of like the crew and the and the people behind this movie, um, I'm reminded that one of the directors is Brenda Chapman, who mm-hmm. is now a Pixar um, director, and she won an Oscar for her work with Brave. Yeah, the the music for this, of course, was also Hans Zimmer, and you know, th- there's a there's a Titan as well. This was back when, you know. Uh, DreamWorks was really starting to to get going, and this might have been one of their first movies. If it was ninety eight, they really mm-hmm. wanted to take on Disney, so they were kind of poaching a lot of the talent, and they were like kind of launching these really big spectacle movies for a while, and and really trying to take the boots to Disney and say that you know you're not gonna like you say have this monopoly on on animation that you've had for all this time, and and really just throwing all kinds of money and talent at their projects. I, I feel, I feel like kind of dumb that I haven't seen this by now. Cause I really should have, I, as I said, the only thing I really know, I knew some of the voices, like I knew, I knew Val Kilmer and I knew Ray Fiennes, but I didn't know about all the others. So like when I was seeing people like Jeff Goldblum and Sandra Bullock uh, in the cast, that was all surprising to me. Um, and I knew the song, like the, the song that was the, the Whitney and uh, Mariah song, when you believe that was all over the radio in 98 mm-hmm. and, uh, and it was up for an Oscar as well. So that's my only, my only memory of this, but I, I, and you're saying it holds up. Like after you rewatch, you're like, yep, this totally holds up. Yep. Still one of my favorites. I'm like, I, gonna make a steel book for it i have it on blu-ray but i'm like well i'll make my own steel book since they have not released one so right right yes you are you are the queen of making custom steel books and and like i still haven't given my own a try but i remember like seeing your birds of prey steel book and i was all jealous yeah i have to make a few others i currently have a pile of movies that i have on blu-ray that i do want to make some more for um, but you know, I'll get to them at some point. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I think we're going to be stuck in home for a little while. So you've got time. Um, exactly. All right. Let, let's, uh, let's get messy here for a second. Brittany Murphy, what is one of the worst movies you have ever seen? I would say the most recent one would be cats. <laughs> uh, it was a screener. <laughs> And I didn't want to go. And the only reason I said I would go was because my fellow um, film colleague and writer was like, if you go, then I will write the review. And I'm like, well, if I don't have to write the review, then yes, I will watch this for free. And I'm glad it was free. Um, Yeah, it's not often that I like would call something the worst film like there were moments that were good i mean i cannot be mad at you know jennifer hudson singing memories like that was a good moment right but it was just some of the i guess stylistic choices were weird i would have preferred if they just went the route of you know the musical and just you know put the wigs and put the makeup and stuff on a person instead of like superimposing a human face on a cat body it was a weird choice <laughs> Uh, I, I still have not seen this and, and if I can help it, it will stay that way. Um, it's, it, it's, it's on TV now, so it's getting a little bit harder to duck, but uh, every day that I don't 
every day that I don't see cats, I consider it a win. I'm not a fan of that musical in the first place. And I, and I do enjoy me some musicals. So it's not like me trying to like lob bombs at the musical genre, but cats as a musical has just never been my thing. And then when you take that for starters and you put it into the hands of Tom Hooper, it just strikes me as a terrible, terrible idea. And I mean, I like really like a lot of the people who were involved with this project. Like I like James Corden. I like Judy Dench. I like Taylor Swift. I certainly like Idris Elba and Jennifer Hudson, but I'm like, there is not going to be near enough uh, goodwill built up by these people to get past the Hooperness and just the fact that it's cats. Exactly. Oh man. Somebody said like, here's the thing. Like a lot of people thought this was a good idea. There were a lot of people who, you know, you can blame, I can, I can sit here and like blame Hooper, but there were a lot of people above him who saw what he turned in and was like, yeah, you're good. Yeah, that's good. Let's put it out. Right. And I'm just like, where did the pieces like fall apart really? Because there were some moments, like I said, that were good, were well done, but then I don't know. It almost seemed like it was not fully finished. I don't know what other way to describe it. I don't know. I like, yeah, I, I think it, it could have gone through, you know, 10 more passes and still mm-hmm. the, the, the look of it and the design of it and, and the whole approach to do it this way is still what you're like. It, it's a concept problem. You know, we're going to co- we're going to come back to this when we get to our, when we get to our comic book nerdiness in a minute, but every once in a while, when you, when you map out, here's how, you know, here's our concept that we're about to film. You're already in trouble from the get-go mm-hmm. if that's the concept so all right yeah th- thank you I, I don't feel i don't feel bad for skipping it if i you know if somebody tells me it's that terrible i feel like i made good life choices and if on the flip side of things what is a classic or essential movie that you have not yet seen i wouldn't necessarily say i'm a fan of horror films only because okay. i don't really like to be scared that much but i have never seen any of the original like universal monster films which i know a lot of people would have in their oh. list of classic essentials so i have not seen dracula bride of frankenstein the original mummy none of those wow okay um so there's good news um because uh we were actually we were talking about this on the last episode um about like horror and the the appreciation for horror or the dislike of horror and how it relates to the feeling that it leaves you with. And I, I'm like you for the longest time, I did not like anything even remotely scary um, until mm-hmm. I kind of changed my approach and my understanding of what I was getting into. So what I would say is the good news is a lot of those uh, universal horror films are not exactly what I'd call scary by today's standards. So don't get me wrong. There's a lot of films from those era, from that era that is still very disturbing. You know, like it's it's kind of crazy, like how dark shit could get back then. Um, you know, and, and how how dark it remains. Um, but the 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 classics, the Dracula, Frankenstein, The Bride, um, Phantom of the Opera, Hunchback, most of those, I would say, they they they're they've gone past scary and even eerie into something much more lyrical and classical so if you're if you were ever kind of worried about it in terms of the visceral response i'd say you're okay um of them all i would probably say frankenstein is the one that's the best 
So if you ever, and I'm, I'm sure I can hear people like arguing with me right now in their own headphones as, as I say that, um, I'm a fan, leave it alone. Um, that if you were ever to dig into the universal classics, the classic horrors, like next Halloween or something like that, I would say Frankenstein is a great place to start um, it, because it's it's got more of the gothic horror to it. You know, like, you know, the, the classic building of a monster, that kind of thing. Dracula has Dracula is really really subdued it's so like it's so still um there's times it's it'll almost lull you um and then some of those others are really really just beautiful in a macabre kind of way like um i know i'm a huge fan now of um creature from the black lagoon um wolfman is really beautiful in its own way i think the invisible man is one of the the universal movies the bride of frankenstein is another gorgeous movie um yeah, so I'd say, you know, maybe one day give them a go um, because they're they're not nearly as as eerie as they used to be, but they're still just so beautiful and there's so much goodness in them. And I and I envy you um, that you get to you know get kind of get the, like you can program yourself like a whole few weeks worth of watching if you wanted to. Um, but they, it's it's funny because I don't think you're alone. I think if you got a group of people together oh you know back when we could get people together um, at the bar and ask okay show of hands who has seen like dracula with bella lugosi or who has seen the invisible man with claude rains i bet you five bucks you get at least a third of the table if not half the table hasn't actually seen them but they just have like scenes in their head right last but not least for any rhyme or reason Brittany murphy what is a film that you wish you had made well, to keep it in theme of what we will be speaking of next, I wish that I had been the one to make the first Wonder Woman movie. Ah, okay. And why that one? Um, specifically just because of the, you know, the cultural, like, standard that it set with, you know, the, um, the first time that a woman was um, directing a comic book film of this, like, like basically huge based on the actual character huge in terms of like you know studio you know warner brothers and all that kind of stuff um so partially that reason and partially just for i guess selfish changes that i would want to make on my own (laughs) part sure um mostly the third act which again in patty jenkins's defense i know she spoke about it recently that they forced her to change the third act because what she wanted was not what we actually saw, which definitely sucks considering that that's the part that most people have the biggest gripe over essentially from that first movie. So it kind of sucks that we didn't get to see what her actual third act would have been. And then the studio changed it and that's what people disliked most. So, so I, I, I actually skimmed past the article. I know I, I saw it in, in my feed uh, last week or the week before, but I, I skimmed past it and didn't dig in. What was her third act supposed to be? So from the article that I read, it was that the fight wasn't supposed to be on such like a huge grand scale. And we never saw um, him actually transform himself kind of into Ares with like, you know, the metal armor, the helmet and everything. Um, which I think actually could have still 
been really cool because he does say, you know, in the movie that, yes, he might whisper ideas to people, but he's not the one actually forcing anyone to do it. They do all of these bad things on their own. So it would have been kind of cool if we just saw her fighting with him in his human form, Mm. essentially, just because it kind of speaks to, you know, what everyone was saying throughout the movie that, yeah, we wish it was just, you know, this one big bad guy, get rid of him and it's all fine, but it's not. People have free will, they can make these decisions on their own. So it would have just been interesting to see her kind of fighting the human version instead of Aries, because then it still kind of puts into your mind the whole thing like, okay, well, there is still this big bad like entity, which sure, but it doesn't absolve all the regular humans from the bad things that they do. I mean, you're right. That is a far better ending. And I mean, yeah, if you were making that movie, maybe you could have, you know, put put some boots to Warner Brothers and got them to see it your way. Um, I know I, I certainly would have would have liked to have seen your version. Um, you know, we'll we'll get into this when we get into our main review. But it, it's interesting to me that now we have two movies that do some really 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 great things with this character and inspire a whole new generation of film goers um especially um you know little girls like you who may look up at their mom and say thanks mommy when they watch the opening of wonder woman 84 they come with a checkered result you know like neither one of these two movies are perfect and you kind of wonder if if there was somebody else in there or certainly if there again like we were getting back to with with cats if there was somebody else that was that was okaying the decisions, you know, and maybe that's right. the thing is that even if you didn't direct it, maybe if you were the producer and you were to listen to Patty Jenkins and what she wanted to do, you know, maybe we would have seen something much better and, and very different and certainly just as iconic. I like that answer. Nobody has, I don't think anybody's given a, given a comic book movie for, for the movie they wish they made. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. Thanks for that. Oh, you're welcome. I mean, also, too, I would have spent some more time on Themyscira, but again, neither here nor there. But yeah. <laughs> you would you probably would have kept Etta Candy in the in the in the proceedings as well. Exactly. There we go. There's lots of things we could do. Um, well, there we go. That's uh, that's a little bit about Brittany Murphy. We will learn more about her when we inevitably get her back, because this ain't going to be no one and done. You're on the roster now. You, like you can expect DMs from me every few months and I'll be like, hey, do you want to come on the show? You're going to get. You're going to get sick of my ass real quick. Now I will look forward to it. <laughs> nice. Uh, well, we have a film to talk about, and um, you know we've kind of spoiled the goods, but um, we're excited anyway. Wonder Woman 1984 is the new slang on this episode. Come on back right after this. Wonder Woman, Wonder Woman. All the world is waiting for you. Possess in your satin tights, fighting for your rights, and the old red, white, and blue. Wonder Woman 1984 is directed by Patty Jenkins. It's written by Jenkins along with Jeff Johns and Dave Callahan. It stars Gal Gadot, Chris Pine, Kristen Wiig, and Pedro Pascal. Wonder Woman 84 is set more than 60 years after the events in the first film from 2017. In this setting, our titular hero is still fighting for justice away from prying eyes while still keeping her day job at the Smithsonian Institute. It's here where she meets Barbara Minerva, that's Kristen Wiig, a slightly awkward gemologist and zoologist that most people forget five minutes after they meet her. 
the two women are tasked with identifying artifacts reclaimed from a jewelry store heist, and one such artifact has the ability to grant wishes at a price. Diana unwittingly makes a wish. Barbara makes one of her own far more overtly. Into the fray walks Max Lord, that's Pedro, a TV-famous businessman whose empire, we learn, is precious more than smoke and mirrors. Lord has been looking for the Dreamstone for quite some time, and it doesn't take much for him to smooth-talk his way into borrowing it from Barbara. This is where things get really surreal. Barbara is suddenly becomes the coolest girl in school, and far more powerful than she ever imagined. Diana reunites with her long-dead love, Steve Trevor, Chris Pine but slowly starts to feel weaker and weaker. Max, meanwhile, beats them all. He becomes the artifact himself, gaining the ability to grant people's wishes and taking from them in return, all in pursuit of more power, more wealth, and more. I want to start by backing up and talking about comic book films on the whole. I say that because when I listen to other film lovers and cinephiles, I can hear the level of disdain rising with every passing year. We don't cover comic book films often on this show. We get maybe one or two a year, in part because you can get coverage of them everywhere else, including Britney's writing, and in part because I don't care for the snide remarks that people I know lob my way whenever I bring up my fandom, as if it's only one thing I watch. So, pop quiz, hot shot. You are a nerd like me. You read the comics, you wear the merch, you go to the conventions. Where are you at with comic book films? And what might you say to those who are weary of them? I would say that much like everything, you should give things a chance. So in terms of comic book films, yes, there are definitely some that I would argue are definitely, you know, more well done than others. Um, But a lot of that too also probably stems from the fact that, you know, if you're someone who reads them, Um, there are probably things that you personally would change or you would have done differently. So again, not well done or not as good as others is also, you know, in the eye of the beholder. But I would suggest just kind of, if it is something you want to get into and you are unsure about it, I would suggest maybe just a few like go-tos. There are some that you can obviously watch as standalones, like, you know, watch one. If you don't like it, then, I mean, don't bother with the others. But I would always recommend, I know people say that they don't age well, but the first X-Men trilogy, minus the third one, you don't need to watch The Last Stand, (laughs) but X1 and X2, I feel like they were good. Yes, they focus more on, you know, Wolverine and his um, journey, But again, we're Canadian. He's a Canadian superhero. So fellow Canadians, watch Wolverine. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, Logan was a very well done movie. I understand that you'd probably have to watch the other, like the Wolverine prior to that. But it's also pretty good as a standalone, in my opinion. It was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay. So, you know, this is a comic book movie that was, you know nominated for something other than you know visual effects or hair and makeup so again I personally would have argued that Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart could have also gotten Oscar noms for their their role but I would just say that just give them a try being a cinephile you're gonna encounter things that you like dislike regardless of genre so you shouldn't go into a comic book based film and just assume that it's not going to be good or it's not going to be bad. I would also argue that there are a lot of movies that cinephiles probably did enjoy but didn't 
perhaps know that they were based on a comic book or graphic novel like mm-hmm. V for Vendetta. A History of Violence is another one that comes yes. to mind. Um, yeah, I mean, to answer my own question, what I the first thing I always say to those who are wary of it is maybe just try to get away from the hype, you know? Turn off Twitter, turn off your social media. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's far easier to streamline your feed these days. And if you don't want to be bombarded with comments and, and fangasms about, you know, the new property, then, you know, just do something else that weekend. It's, it's not going to kill you. Um, because I feel like a lot of the time, what a lot of audiences, what a lot of film goers are responding to is less the films themselves and more the hype surrounding them. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and, and listen, I get it. You know, when you go downtown Toronto and the entirety of Dundas square is billboards for dark Phoenix. Yeah. It can feel like you can't turn anywhere without seeing an X-Man looking back at you. Um, Mm -hmm. But I, I I do feel like it's easy enough to get away from them for, for whatever time it's going to bother you. Um, As for where I am with my comic book films, I still enjoy them. Um, I, I, I don't, it's not all I watch. It's not all I consume. Um, it's not, it's not even when I'm looking to like rewatch something to just kind of chill out. It's, it's not the only thing I reach for. And that's what keeps me quite happy with it is the fact that I'm balancing these, um, happy meals in, in some ways, you know, because they, they are big glossy products um, with, with other works, but also I watch them and I, I start going past the big bombast and I look for those little moments in between. Um, you know, I, I look for moments where, you know, you bring up Logan and that's a great one to bring up because I actually think that that's a fantastic standalone film, whether you've seen those other X-Men movies or not. I look for those moments like Logan and Charles eating at that family's table and talking about how, well, I I don't think I was a very good student. Well, I might not have been the greatest teacher. And you're just watching two old friends, you know, who have been through so much that you've watched over like 20 years already, you know, just talking over a table. It's those moments that I love in comic book films more than the big fights, more than the splashy quotes. I just love those moments of camaraderie, those moments of humanity. Um, same thing, like in the books. Like I, I love the panels that are dedicated to one character being behind on a TV show and, and you know, deriding another character for spoilers. Okay, we've got Wonder Woman 84. Um, I kind of know already because I read your review. Um, on the whole, what did you think of, of this movie by Patty Jenkins? I liked it. I say that <laughs> I almost believe that. I know. <laughs> so it's not that I disliked the film. I liked the film, but there were problems with the film, which I sure. guess you can argue the same for many comic book films or just films in general. Um, however, as you said, you read my review at the time when I posted the review, I couldn't say much because obviously, you know, under embargoes and such like things like that so I tried to kind of point to where I thought the problems laid without you know spelling out the whole entire you know scene or whatever section of the movie things were happening so on the whole I did enjoy the movie but it would be remiss of me to say I enjoyed it and not talk about 
the things that I had issues with. I Like you, I like this movie, much like its predecessor. It's got flaws. You know, it, like we talk about these movies and... I, I feel like we're always grading on a curve because right. when we talk, no matter what movie you're talking about, like they're not really all created equal. You know, if we're comparing this to other comic book movies, you know, it's a little bit better than average. If we're comparing it to other movies that came out in 2020, it's not going to crack my top 25, right? Does that mean it's bad? Mm-hmm. No, far from it. Um, does that mean it's a bad comic book movie? Again, no, far from it because there are some terrible comic book movies that exist out there in the world but it doesn't mean that just because i like it that i can't throw an asterisk on it and say i like it but and that's i I think that's kind of where we're both at with it um and you know i i I do know like your your biggest hang up with it and i would agree so why don't we kind of get right to that point um of of the the plot and, and why it bothers uh, viewers like you. All right. So let's talk about the Egypt scene. <laughs> um, I know people were, when they first kind of saw the scene, because I guess at one of the virtual award shows, I think it was the MTV award, like movie awards that they did virtually, they kind of, you know, they released a clip of it or whatever. So people were going on about the CGI and I'm just like, okay, we're still here. How many comic book movies, like literally halfway through or whatever, they clearly have run out of money or whatever. And the CGI is not good. So I don't really, the CGI thing for me was not an issue. It is what it is. It's like every other comic book movie. I mean, I was watching it at home on my TV. It it wasn't like a theater. It wasn't an IMAX, like it was shot. So I'm sure like, that was literally the least of the problems. Yeah. I feel as though it's one of those things where when you're watching it and it's unfortunate because the actual scene, when the action part of it kicks up, it's an exciting scene, but all Mm -hmm. the things leading up to it is problematic. So it was very stereotypical, very tropey. I get that the movie was set in the eighties and, they were kind of going for that, you know, Indiana Jones kind of vibe. Though I feel as though you have a a group of people that are, say, you know, younger than us who have obviously would have never seen the Indiana Jones movies. So them putting the context of that and perhaps maybe it was the filmmakers, the writers, whomever, they were trying to, you know, kind of show off like that these are like you know stereotypes these are problematic things but they have been in other movies because you know they're playing up the whole 1984 vibe i feel as though that is definitely something that will get lost in translation especially today where everything rightfully so people are going to call you out on your shit essentially yeah you need to try just a little bit harder now Exactly. And I feel as though that was something that was missed. And while I don't know who wrote this particular part of the story, I mean, in my mind, I have an inkling of (laughs) which of the writers, you know, was the one who perhaps put this scene in based on, you know, their other work. I just feel like it's one of those things where you definitely did not have enough people of color, perhaps in your writing room perhaps when they were doing the you know they do like the screeners like super in advance to kind of gauge like reactions and things 
perhaps that too did not have, you know, many people of color in attendance, because I can tell you that if you did, there would have been a fair few people pointing this out to you. Yeah. Yeah. There's it's, it's crazy because what this sequence serves, the idea of Max Lord, you know, trying to get more oil and, and missing it because he's just late, but getting a security force and then setting that up for this, this, you know, standoff on the, on the highway between the trucks, you don't need to set that in the middle East. Like you can do, there's all kinds of places in the world. You can do that. Um, really and truly like Max Lord can, can, con some other mercenary or some other uh demagogue out of their their power to 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 start building his thing and this is it's the first real move he makes too so you you know it's not like Mm -hmm. you're already neck deep in this and then you can do the truck sequence literally anywhere in the world you could have done it on on a long stretch of road in ireland if you wanted it didn't necessarily need to be uh, a desert road like you say like i do i certainly saw the the raiders of the lost ark comparison in this sequence and it's a shame because that sequence is actually really well done and a lot of fun, Mm -hmm. but you are already coming into it with this bad taste in your mouth because of what has just preceded it. And it was my friend Ferdosa who was actually saying, she's like, you know, and she too like is of the same like sentiments as us where she enjoyed the movie, but she thought obviously that there was, you know, glaring problems And she actually made a suggestion that I thought actually made a lot of sense. So she's like, if they were trying to go with the whole, you know, oil money thing, which obviously in the 80s, I mean, even now it's still very much a thing. She's like, you're set already in the 80s. Why wouldn't you just go to Texas? There's lots of oil and oil tycoons or families in Texas. Obviously, Dallas was a big show in the 80s. So that also would have made a lot of sense. And I'm like, again because clearly they had the wrong people in the writers <laughs> yeah you even you even have desert roads you could have done the you know you wouldn't have even had to lose the aesthetic exactly yeah um i i came away from this movie generally pleased um there's mm-hmm. there, there's there's a couple things that kind of ha- left me scratching my head um in terms of what what we got, but nothing that would really, really sink it into me saying that it's a bad movie. Um, I mean, like one of the things that I thought was a strange choice is as far as the, the new DC movies are concerned, I've gone to bat several times saying that wonder woman has the best theme music, like that Mm. wailing guitar theme music with those pounding drums. That's pretty damn cool. And in this music, in this, um, chapter of her story they kind of dialed it down like you can sort of hear it in in like this weird string arrangement and i don't really know why they did that because every time you hear that music you just know that she's going to show up and do something badass speaking of there's a scene midway through this movie where diana learns how to control her powers into flying and when she's when when this happens when she has this first flight um the movie chooses to score that with the iconic theme from sunshine which again i thought was such a strange decision because you've got this absolutely huge moment in the film it's it's probably 
the closest this film comes to her her walk across no man land in the first movie and you're underpinning it with borrowed music it seems completely counterintuitive i would agree with that that was one of the things that i didn't like about the scene as much as i really did love that scene yeah i feel as though it was a moment where you could have added like if you were gonna borrow they should have just borrowed um some of the music from the first wonder woman film um by rupert like part of that no man's land scene perhaps to kind of you know put it in there to kind of show the parallels between the two moments essentially or they could have just given her her own little flight theme yeah i'm i'm totally on board for that you know like write a second movement or 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 you know you've got a talented uh Got a talented musician doing this. Write something new. You know, the, the, I'm not sure if this this is Jenkins or not. But do you feel like this film was um, going out of its way to feel a little bit more feminist than the first? I don't necessarily think so, but only because of the fact that um, it just kind of made me think of. I guess the part issue was the more kind of you know white feminist kind of thing versus just you know feminism for everybody Mm -hmm. so i guess i never really got that just because again much like what people said in the first one there is not you know kind of much diversity so i guess when thinking about it in like a feminist you know or looking at it with a feminist lens i didn't necessarily get that but that's probably because all the other things that were going on just kind of pushed it back or out of my view essentially yeah i i think where i'm going with this is the first movie because the first movie was only written by snyder um alan henberg and jason fuchs there was precious little feminism in that movie at all like that's that's always been kind of one of my hang-ups with that first wonder woman movie is I, in a lot of ways, believe that that was a a heroine movie written by dudes. And this movie, because we have Patty Jenkins uh, involved with the writing process, we got a few more flourishes. And I guess where it really caught my attention is, you know, there was a lot more pushback and, and rightfully so on the men in the in the movie so you get a lot of times where like the men in the smithsonian will want to be talking to either barbara or diana or both and a lot of times they're just like you know please leave me alone you know or or saying or you know like that that kind of thing i kind of feel like that was a little bit more of a deliberate point in this movie and i mean even steve when he when he first shows up he says that you know like he he woke up in this this new body because when steve um, in this movie shows up he doesn't show up at first as him he shows up he is somebody else and we just understand that diana is able to see that it's steve in this other guy's body steve even says he's like i tried to find you and, and it took a little while so I, I and i didn't know how to approach you so i was just kind of following you like a creep like to, to see chris pine kind of say it that way and you do believe that chris pine thinks that following a woman like that is very creepy um yes but that's the thing i feel like those little flourishes were very intentional and i don't like i don't know if they were heavy-handed or they worked or they didn't work but i would say for sure that i certainly noticed them this time a lot more than the first film yes i would agree with that i feel like my 
favorite moment if I was talking about, you know, if we're on the subject of feminism um, was definitely the scene where I know people have been arguing whether this was like her, you know, coming into her villain moment or not. I didn't see it as such, um, but it's when Kristen Wiig, and she has already started to kind of develop the cheetah powers and she's kind mm-hmm. of like, what's going on? Um, and a mim- one of the men who attacked her earlier in the movie or harassed her early in the movie shows back up again and he tries to grab her, but she grabs his arms and she's like, no. And I don't know if anyone else noticed this. It was something that I noticed when I watched it. Um, but when she throws him into the like van that's parked on the side, the van had a pig on it. And I was just like, okay, so this uh-huh. man is a pig. She's throwing him into the van that has the pig on it. I'm like, I like it. Um, <laughs> But I didn't see that necessarily as her villain moment. I literally saw it as a woman who had been earlier harassed by this person. And she was like, no, you're not going to do this to me again. And so she obviously gets upset, rightfully so, and is like, no, you're not going to touch me again. Though I know a lot of people were saying that they didn't care for that because that kind of was her villain moment. But I never saw that as her villain moment. I saw the White House scene as her villain moment. But yeah, yeah I do think that was a very feminist um stance in that section of the film yeah and like i say like i I wonder if this is patty jenkins having a go at the script or maybe even just hearing the criticism of the first movie uh or or just seeing more movies because we're you know over slowly and i do mean very slowly we're seeing female characters being pushed more and more to the front of these movies so maybe it was just they were able to see um what else is done and how else it's handled and sometimes mishandled um i did enjoy the setting of the 80s for the materialistic tone like mm-hmm. if if you're gonna do this if you're gonna like monkey's paw the world and, and give everybody like wishes and, and have them send the world to shit because of selfish reasons i do think that setting it in the 80s was a good idea it's something that I feel like either people have forgot or maybe they didn't know. I mean, I was just a kid in the eighties, so I didn't really, you know, experience this stuff through the eyes of somebody who is like Steve or Diana's age, but the greed and the, the materialism of the age, Mm -hmm. it really, really works well with this whole notion that people will just, take life is good but it could be better like if you're going to set that at any time in history setting in the 80s is probably just bang on like i myself am not a child of the 80s my mom was so just hearing some of her stories and you know it's always about you know wanting this and needing to have that and oh jordash jeans or like you know the newest (laughs) adidas shoes or whatever it may be so i do think that that was definitely a good place to set the film when when you introduce diana prince into the 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 staging of world war one when you want to come back to her you can literally come back to her at any point in history that's kind of the great thing about starting her her tale so far in the past right it's it's kind of interesting that we're talking about this movie two weeks i think after it dropped it dropped on christmas day we're recording this on the 7th so a little about two weeks after it dropped um you know, we're able to kind of respond to some of the other responses um, that have come out about this movie. There's been a lot of talk about the taking of a man's body um, 
because, as I said, like when Steve Trevor first shows up, he doesn't show up as the pilot that she last saw flying into the sky in France. He shows up, you know, in the corpus of another man who basically just had Steve Trevor's consciousness dropped into him. What do you make of this whole idea that this is a story that, you know, indulges Diana's wish fulfillment but at the cost of male consent. So that was another thing about the movie that I didn't care for, obviously. And I also felt that it was something that overcomplicated things like gods and mythical stones and things, magic. They literally could have just brought him back. Like he could have just popped out of thin air, essentially. Like they didn't have to overcomplicate it with him being in anybody's body because it's a comic book movie. There have been weirder things done. I mean, how many times has Jean Grey died and come back at this point? (laughs) So, I mean, they literally could have just had him just somehow reappear. When the things were first kind of going around about um, Chris Pine returning, but obviously there was no context to it, my thought and kind of my hope was that they would, you know, continue with the mythological um, story that they had in the first one with, you know, Ares and then how he took out all the gods. However, the only god that doesn't live on Olympus is Hades. So we don't really know what happened to him. So my hope and my thought was that perhaps it would be something Hades related where perhaps it is a wish from Diana, but perhaps she is, you know, talking to her uncle. And so she wishes for him back, but then he wants something from her. Because again, most of the time when you wish for things, especially if someone like Hades is involved, it's not for free. Right. Um, so I just felt that the whole him being in another person's body was an odd choice. Because again, it's magic, it's myth. He literally could have just popped up from anywhere. And I, well, at least me, I wouldn't have thought anything of it. Because again, weirder things have happened in comics yeah i think you know we're kind of hitting on a theme for where wonder woman 84 goes wrong is it's 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 in these little corners where it shouldn't have screwed up you know like it's it's kind of crazy that you generally get the story right you certainly get the action beats right in this movie like i gotta say that patty jenkins can direct an action sequence like anybody in the world there are some fantastic set pieces in this movie but then you get into some of these individual decisions, like I was saying about the music or like you were saying about the choice to um, play onto some racist tropes in the Middle East or, you know, to take a to take an average dude, rip away his consent and drop another man's consciousness into him. When you very, you know, if you're already into the world of magic where somebody's consciousness can return, just bring them back into the regular body and you wonder, you know, about the actual decision making. And I think maybe... This is one of those places where comic book movies have it tough because there are so many cooks in these kitchens that Mm -hmm. you can't always have your voice heard in the room when you try to say something like, wait a sec, guys, if we do this, you know, we're, we're sending a message against consent. I do see the complaint. Um, I, I, and I, and it's valid. This one I went along with a little bit less. There was a really great piece that this came up with um, that also brought up uh, Bridgerton 
as as another moment of of lack of male consent. And I think Bridgerton is a better example that the two just happened to show up at the same time, and that's why they got lumped together. You know, I would never say to somebody, "Oh, you're being crazy." Like that's not a problem. It's like, no, this is a problem. I, 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 for me, I'm not sure how big a problem I found it. Right. Like upon first watching, it was kind of I'm like, this is kind of weird, but I didn't really like zone in on it until I, you know, I also read the piece you were speaking about with the Bridgerton, um, and I was like, okay, so this, yeah, like it totally makes sense. And I understand why people obviously have an issue with it. Um, but yeah, it, it's just it's just so strange because you have all of these things that are going on. And one of the people that you had on board writing is someone who actually writes comic books. So I'm just like, what is going on here? Like, you could have done a multiple, like a multitude of things that happened in the comics are at your disposal. Mm-hmm you write comics and then it, I didn't know this, but it was someone else who pointed out is that he's actually half Lebanese, Jeff Johns. Um, so he's oh, wow. also Arab American. So then the whole, that just adds another like layer of tomfoolery to the whole <laughs> Middle East, North Africa, Egypt scene. And I'm just like, what is going on? You're like you're 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 fixing things that you're fixing things that needed fixing in the first place, but now you're adding a whole new things that needed to be. Uh, my hope is by the time they get to the third one, they're going to get it just perfect. You know, they've they'll they'll, they'll they'll they've already got the stuff that they fixed. They'll they'll fix the new stuff and they won't break more things. That's my hope. I hope DC films are spotty at best when it comes to their villains um what did you make of max lord in this movie i will have to say that these last two dceu movies that have come out shout out to birds of prey one time because i really enjoyed that have had very good villains um i really enjoyed pedro pascal as maxwell lord um i didn't know exactly you know because he's currently in the Wonder Woman comics right now. So I wasn't sure if they were going to go for a more current, you know, kind of obviously still set in the eighties, but you know, the storyline from that's currently going on or set it back when he, you know, first arrived in 1987 and go with that. Um, I really enjoyed him in the role. I know a lot of people were saying that, Oh, it was kind of like a lot and he was extra. I'm like, okay, but it was the eighties. Everyone was extra. Yeah. (laughs) So, I didn't mind it. I thought he did a very good job. Um, I mean, he kind of stole the show a little bit. Like, it's not even his movie, and he was out here doing what he had to do. So I really enjoyed him. I actually really liked Kristen Wiig. When it was first announced that she was cast, I will be the first person to say that I didn't necessarily... I don't think I disliked it. I was just like, this is an odd choice but you know i will trust the filmmaker obviously the casting people i do like Kristen wig and the other things that she has been in so i'm sure i will like her here and i have to say i really enjoyed her she was really really good as cheetah and barbara minerva i liked both of these villains and it's rare that i say that for any dc movie let alone you know the, the ones recently um it's kind of a it's kind of become 
standard that when you make your second film uh, in a series that you have your hero fighting two villains instead of just one. I don't really know why that became a thing that by the time we get to the second film, we need to start to outnumber the hero, but it's been on the go for a very, very, very long time. It's not, it's not any kind of a new development. Um, it's, it's cool to me that there's not a whole lot of play between Max Lord and, and Barbara Minerva Cheetah until we get to the, the final sequence. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, one, one baddie is, is growing in terms of her descent into madness while the other one is just not, you know, is, is grown like in a, in a very short amount of time. And by the time you kind of look up, it's like, Oh shit, now I've got two problems. Max Lord, um, you know, you're right in the comics. He's a very, very different beast um and they i mean to their credit mild spoilers they don't kill him in this movie uh so they they Mm -hmm. they can bring him back in another darker iteration in the future perhaps a more power hungry iteration but i think the idea like especially like right now at this time and place i think the idea of somebody who wants power and fame but doesn't actually really want to get it by merit who guys who just wants to talk their way through it with a with a flashy smile and a good suit they're not even all that good um i think that that's a really really great idea for a villain i agree it definitely speaks to a lot of what is currently happening today yeah um and whether that was part of you know the writing process when they were you know doing the script and screenplay for this whether that was part of their thought process or whether it's something that just kind of happened. I mean, either way, kudos to them because even though it's set in the, uh, the 80s, it's very much, you know, in line with the things of 2016 and beyond and really earlier than that, if we're being quite honest. Yeah, you know, when you, when you look at the character design of Max Lord, he will remind you of somebody and I gotta believe that's not an accident. Yeah. Um, I really enjoyed uh, the character development of Diana. I know that this is probably something that many will disagree with me about. Um, Because, you know, we always like to see, you know, the warrior, the fighter. But this one, we see a a more vulnerable side of Diana. And I feel very much so that the first one was, you know, her coming into her power, her essentially becoming Wonder Woman. And this film is more about her as Diana the person. So I feel like that is one of the reasons why I did enjoy the movie because the emotionally impactful moments of her saying things like, I don't ask for anything. I basically give all that I have and I'm happy to. I just want this one thing because again, much like the rest of us, there's always that one thing that we want. There's always that one person we miss because, you know, it's not as if everyone is going to go throughout their whole lifetime without experiencing loss in Mm -hmm. some way, shape or form, Um, whether it's, you know, your spouse or significant other, a family member, a friend. So she's literally, you know, she's immortal, essentially. So she's, been going through a lot of loss. And I know people keep hanging up on the whole fact that, oh, it was Steve. I mean, I'm not going to complain because it's Chris Pine. So the more (laughs) Steve, the better, in my opinion. Um, 
but I feel like a lot of people kind of hang up so much on the Steve part. And I don't think it's necessarily just Steve. Like no. you see that she has pictures of Etta and Etta's obviously like, you know, elderly at that point. So she's lost Etta. You have pictures of her, um, you know, at Charlie's wedding. And then you have pictures with her and Chief. And again, these are all people. Well, maybe not Chief, because I know that they talked about him being a demigod. So perhaps he is still, you know, around somewhere. Right. Um, but, you know, she's lost so many people in her life, even before she even, you know, left them mascara. Because the first thing that she sees from humans is them, you know, storming the shores and killing half of her, like, you know, friends and family. Mm-hmm. So I feel like that was my biggest takeaway is I really enjoyed the character development of Diana as the person. You're right. This movie's attention to, you know, even the very, very best of us wanting just one little thing is I really think is what makes it work the best. What what makes it overcome a lot of these shortcomings that we've spent so much time talking about is this very human story at its center. And it's the kind of story that I read comic books to, to find. Like they're really not all about gods, you know, smacking the shit out of each other for control of the world. There is a lot of real humanity um, in, in the source material that a lot of the time just can't make it into the adaptations because there's just no time. It's like, you know, we can't really have Harley and Ramirez have a conversation about, you know, how hard it is to have a broken heart and get out of a toxic relationship because there's a city to blow up. You know, it's like you want these characters to have a human conversation, but you need to keep the line moving. Otherwise you're going to make a four hour movie. And, you know, sometimes they still make a four hour movie, but you're right. The, the vulnerability, the humanity, that we see in Diana in this movie is, is very real. I think it's the kind of thing that a lot of people can relate to um, the sense of loss. Uh, and it's, it's what elevates this movie higher than it really needs to be. I, I must admit that I did enjoy, you know, on the lighter side of things, I did enjoy the reversal of the fish out of water. I liked that this time around it was Steve. I really liked the escalator scene. That was cute. I mean, when he sees the, rocket and he's like oh what kind of plane is that i mean Mm -hmm. even the scene where he's eating the pop tarts i was like yes yeah i mean it's it's like listen we were talking before about people having problem with consent in this movie chris prine you know that is a that is a beautiful man it is great to know that coming up he like took courses in writing erotica you know his his single tear certainly strikes a chord but that man was eating pop tarts in bed Right, exactly. And was eating Pop Tarts in bed. I mean, I don't I I do not fault her for resisting. And he said <laughs> in the first movie, if all she can see it she said in this one that all she sees is him. So, you know, she doesn't see, you know, I think he, he's also a Chris, but spelled with a K. Chris Palaha was handsome man um in the movie. Um right. Um, who I did like, by the way, because he gave me Lyle Wagoner vibes from the, you know, the original Wonder Woman show. Um, But, you know, to your point, he was in bed and he was eating Pop-Tarts and 
he said in the first movie that he is above average. I'm just, there's many things that are going on. I, this is, listen, I've been married 11 years now. Do you know what would happen to me if I was eating Pop-Tarts in bed? Now, I know I don't look like Chris Pine, but if I was eating Pop-Tarts in bed, you know what happened to me? I can imagine. Yeah. I'm so- <laughs> This is where the movie gets really fantastical. Um, You know, the one thing we're not going to talk too much about the end of this movie, just because I don't really want to spoil the ending. Um, But the one thing I do want to point out is um, this movie, it continues something that I saw and loved two years ago in Captain Marvel. And that is that in the end of this movie, we have Diana as Wonder Woman, making a declaration um, when she is kind of backed into a corner Mm -hmm. and it's a declaration of strength. And what I love about this moment and the way it mimics a moment in Captain Marvel is that both women, both, both heroines make their declaration while shedding a tear. And in neither case, do you see that tear as a sign of weakness? I love that we are starting to see the mixing of just, you know, tension while still trying to push forward. Um, I think it's a beautiful trend that if, if I had my way, I would have it happen more often. And certainly I would even would love to see it happen with male characters too. I would agree with that. And it's funny because I was going to do a rewatch of Captain Marvel um, a few weeks back, but then, you know, you get sidetracked and everything. Um But yeah, it's just, I remember when Captain Marvel came out, a lot of the responses in terms of, you know, as you were just saying, shedding a tear and, you know, feeling sorrowful, but still being powerful. um, A lot of people had the same kind of comments towards Captain Marvel that I've seen personally on, you know, Twitter and different social media for Wonder Woman, where it's this weird thing where, oh, like, why are like, you know, they're showing the character as being so weak, et cetera. And I'm, and I'm like, that seems like a, for lack of a better, for better words, it seems like a you problem. If you are watching these characters and thinking that, you know, while they're making their declarations and statements and they're feeling emotional, that it's any, in any way, shape or form, a sign of weakness. I'm like, if anything, me watching it, I'm just like, wow, this makes me love it even more. We end every matinee cast with a souvenir, something tangible or intangible. If you could take away from Wonder Woman 84 and keep, you would. Brittany Murphy, if you could keep anything, what would you take from this movie? So I was toiling and thinking about this for a long time. Two things that I would take that are, you know, I guess it would count as props. Well, really costume pieces. Mm -hmm. The uh, helmet from the Golden Eagle armor, just the helmet. I mean, the wings would be cool too, but I mean, I have a Iron Man helmet and I'm trying to get the Black Panther one. So the Golden Eagle armor would fit nicely in my little collection. And the other thing would be, you know, why not have the fanny pack that Chris Pine was wearing? (laughs) Why not? Uh, my, I mean, I'm also taking something of Steve. Um, uh, Steve wears a scarf um, in one of those outfits, and it actually happens to be the, the the guy's scarf. And you see the guy wearing it again when he shows up later on. Uh, that's a really great scarf. I'm, I've, I've become a connoisseur of good scarves, and the, I'm looking at that. I'm like, I could pull that off. That was a good scarf. It's a good one scarf. of those ones where it's not too because I. 
I like the scarves that are almost like more of a wrap or, you know, an infinity type of scarf, like more fabric. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like a Serge Ibaka scarf. Yes. If people don't know what I'm talking about, just go to the show notes. I'll include, uh, I'll include some imagery and you can see Serge Ibaka and all of his scarfy goodness. Uh, We rate here on the matinee cast on a scale of one to four stars. Brittany Murphy, what do you give Wonder Woman 1984 on a scale of one to four? I would give it a three. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm in the same. Um, you know, it's it's better than most, but it's still got flaws. Uh, you know, when we were talking earlier about where people jump in with these kind of movies, it's not exactly where I'd tell somebody to start. But at the same time, I think that it's it it's got it's got some good stuff. It's got some fun action. Um, I will admit that uh, there are some sequences that I would really have much rather seen on a big screen. Um, but, but, but it's not bad. Um, three out of four from both of us. Hey, maybe you think that this movie is terrible. Maybe you think that this movie is amazing. Let me know. Ryan at the matinee.ca Twitter, where I'm matinee underscore CA or facebook.com slash dark matinee. What do you think of Patty Jenkins? Wonder woman, 1984. We are going to take a quick break and, uh, come back and talk about some more movies right after this. We're back. She's Brittany Murphy. I'm Ryan McNeil. We've been talking about Wonder Woman 1984. It is matinee cast 251. First episode of 2021. How's your year going so far? Mine's off to a strange start, as I'm sure many of us are. Um, we're going to go down uh, to the other side. We're going to kind of talk about some other movies that go along with um, Patty Jenkins' sequel to Wonder Woman. And um, you're going to get us started this time around because you've got more movies than I do. Uh, what was one of the first movies to, to jump out at you as a possible companion piece to Wonder Woman 1984? So one that I thought of, again... Um, Kristen Wiig I do enjoy her so I feel like everyone I mean you may have already seen it may have not um, Bridesmaids would make a good companion Um, it's also a very great way to see um, Kristen Wiig's work because obviously her role in Bridesmaids is very different than um, her as Barbara Minerva and Cheetah so I thought too would also be a good precursor into seeing like you know her acting range Um, I also just thought it would be kind of a cool um, link just for the simple fact that, you know, Diana and Barbara are friends and then the whole point of Bridesmaids is, you know, your your best friend's Bridesmaids. So it has the friendship connection kind of there, which I wish we had a bit more of in Wonder Woman. But again, Kristen Wiig, I I love her as an actor. Like she's done... Um, some really, really interesting stuff over the course of her career. She, you know, like she's obviously done a lot of the walk on roles in some of the slapsticky movies like Knocked Up and Walk Hard and those kinds of things where, you know, she's basically playing her kooky little Kristen Wigness. But then mm-hmm. she's done a whole bunch of other stuff where she plays it straight and you find like how much range she has and i think about movies like there's a really great one she did two back to back that are really wonderful one called hate ship love ship 
and another one called the skeleton twins which she actually did with bill Hader back when they were both on snl and yeah kristen wig is such a talented actor that i feel sometimes gets buried underneath her her kooky persona so you know both and, and that's even even in bridesmaids bridesmaids she really gets um a chance to shine as a human as much as she does as a comedian well i my first one that i thought of um as a companion piece to wonder woman 1984 was i went the dc superhero connection and i went back to superman 2 directed by richard donner uh Mm -hmm. i think the the one that got released was actually directed by somebody else Uh, richard donner was famously taken off the project and there is such thing as a a donner cut of this movie back before you know director's cuts of of <laughs> superhero movies were a whole other ball of wax but i, I went back to superman 2 because it was along with the fact that it was one of the first major superhero movies to go with like superman 2 its first film and you know if you really want to count it that live action version of the batman tv show those were kind of the first uh, superhero movies the tonality of wonder woman 1984 um really has a lot more in common with those first two Superman movies. And I think you even mm-hmm. mentioned as much in your piece that it's, it's a tonal fit. Yeah, I would agree. Other, I mean, the other main reason why I brought up Superman 2 and not the, the, the 1978 Superman is because Superman 2 is the one where Cal wrestles with wanting to step away from his powers and be mortal so that he can be with Lois. And... Mm-hmm. It, you know, it's this, you see it come up in comic book lore a lot. Like we saw it in, in Spider-Man 2 as well. I'm sure we've seen it in countless uh, published comics where the hero just really wants just to live a normal life, just to live a simpler life with, you know, one person or to have a family or whatever it is. And I loved the way that was handled in Superman 2. Maybe it's something with the, the way that uh, Christopher Reeve, you know, embodies kind of an everyman even though he looks like christopher reeve um but i i love that the way that that was handled in superman 2 and the way that you know he he has to wrestle with whether or not he can keep living this normal life or has to step back into the the tights of the man of tomorrow it's been a long long minute (laughs) but i got all four for my stepdad because he's a huge superman fan over christmas so i'm just gonna you know borrow them and rewatch. it uh, fair warning it takes a steep dive after two although i will say like since i'm on this train already i will say as well the cool thing is when you watch superman 3 pay attention to that opening sequence because it's got I, i feel like the tonality of that has a as a commonality of the 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 washington opening of wonder woman you'll see some mm. similarities there too i so, like it all right so what else do you got to go along with wonder woman um so the next one that i have is actually again you know my love of chris pine has been addressed on the show obviously <laughs> um and also my love of animation so we will bring it back to another dreamworks animation which had the voice of chris pine and that is rise of the guardians oh you are a star that movie is not mentioned nearly enough it is so good tell people about this movie i don't feel like this thing this movie came and went 
in a hot second. And it, it yeah, it it's it really deserves some better love. Tell people about Rise of the Guardians. So Rise of the Guardians is an animated feature from DreamWorks Animation. Um, again, a great voice cast. You have Chris Pine as Jack Frost, um, Alec Baldwin as Nicholas St. North or Santa Claus, um, Hugh Jackman as uh, E. Aster Bunnymond or the Easter Bunny. Mm-hmm. And then you have Isla Fisher as uh, Toothiana or the Tooth Fairy. And then the villain Pitch Black is pay- uh, played by Jude Law. Um, but basically, the movie is all the guardians, you know, all of the, you know, children's favorites and things. And they're all in almost like a kind of war with the Pitch Black character because essentially he is threatening. Um, children in the human world with all of his nightmares and because all the nightmares are happening the children are not believing as much because you know they're waiting for you know one of the guardians to come in and save them but obviously it's hard for them to do when you have this you know super powerful entity who is you know sending dreams and other scary things into the midst of the human world It's just a very interesting movie, just in general. Um, I remember really wanting to see it when the trailers came out. I think it came out, I want to say it was 2012. Um, But it's just, again, a really well done film. Again, the voice cast is really great. And I feel like in terms of Wonder Woman, the reason why it fits other than Chris Pine is just the idea of like, you know, dreams or wishes kind of perhaps leading down bad paths so i guess in terms of the film the chris pine jack frost character would kind of be you know the role of wonder woman and it's kind of you know like gives a kind of justice league vibe like not the movie did not care for the movie i just mean the (laughs) team as a whole um So that's why I think it would make a good companion for Wonder Woman, especially because I also think, you know, Wonder Woman 1984 is a movie that you can enjoy with the family. So also, you know, you could watch Rise of the Guardians with the fam as well. So a couple things. First of all, if people are getting tired of watching the same seven movies every holiday season, I would say work Rise of the Guardians into your rotation because it is Mm -hmm. fantastic. And as I said, did not get, near enough love uh on its release even though people like Brittany and i love it um start working this one into the rotation because this is a movie that just gets better and better every time you see it um i think another connection is the fact that you've you've got these characters that are immortals right there's always something mm-hmm. interesting when you've got characters who can't age and just has to watch the world change around them like like diana does and certainly you know like characters like like superman do um the one other thing i will mention about this movie that you didn't touch on is the other guardian uh is the one guardian who doesn't speak the sandman sandy the sandman he steals the movie for me because he's just there's times where he's got to make himself known and he's just so damn cute and so charming with what he does um you know that's just one of those things of like character of great character design that i really love oh man it's been a minute since i watched that movie so thank you so much for reminding me of that movie that is a that would make a great double feature uh certainly uh, somebody had to watch wonder woman on christmas day would have been great to either start it out or move on to rise of the guardians my other choice for another side uh companion i went with 
the 80s theme. And I went with a movie that I really like, but at the same time, I kind of hate. And that's The Wolf of Wall Street. Because you have, you know, like we were saying before, like people really don't remember or understand how materialistic and selfish a time the 80s were, and especially in certain circles, and just how badly so many people wanted to just make more, 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 and and really, really line their pockets, you know? Um, Wolf of Wall Street really plays that up. Wolf of Wall Street shows just how despicable people would get. Like some people who would probably make Max Lord blush. People who actually probably would have laughed at max lord like you know you get to the, you get the idea in wonder woman that max lord has been laughed out of a lot of offices and had a lot of phones hung up on him and that kind of thing and the people in wolf of wall street are the kind of people who had the power and the control and were actually making a success of their business almost unilaterally with the exception of Kristen Milotti and margot robbie everybody in that movie is, des- is despicable um so it's I just I think it's a really great example of 80s greed um, through a modern lens. Um, and, and I think that, you know, when you put the two together, you could really get a sense. I would probably say start with Wall Street and then move on to Wonder Woman, because otherwise you're just going to like want to kill yourself by the time it's all done. Um, but I, I think that they would make a nice pairing. I haven't seen that movie in a minute either. That's becoming the theme of this show. If I if I had subtitles to my episodes, this this episode would be subtitled. Haven't seen it in a minute. It's true. I feel like I saw it the one time and then never watched it again. You that might be a bit, that might be a good way to go. <laughs> if I'm being entirely <laughs> honest, just let it live on in your memory in that one way. All right, take us home. You've got one more movie that you think would make a good companion film. What do you got to close us out? So the next one is an odd choice. And probably the reason that I'm picking it is also odd, but I am a sucker for good action sequences in these comic book films, especially when they're done right. So the other companion piece that I will choose for Wonder Woman 1984 will be X-Men 2, X-Men United because of the scene in the White House. And then we have the scene in the White House for Uh, Wonder Woman. Yes, yes. X2. So I'm less of a fan of the the, the Brian Singer trilogy than you. Um, but X2 was certainly when it seemed to be clicking. Like it, it kind of mm-hmm. felt like when they got the closest to the balance. Um, it was the movie that gave Storm a little bit more to do. And I, I feel like that's a real important piece considering how powerful of a mutant she is because she really didn't have a whole lot to do in that first one that that opening in the white house and i mean it closes in the white house too mild mild spoilers for a 2003 major production um yeah it's it 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 works so well in a lot of ways and in terms of its set pieces and and how it moves from place to place um and i think I, i you know that was a kind of feel like where the comic book film, the modern comic book film really started to get its legs under it. When you kind of get this, this sequence from year to year of X two, Spider-Man two and Batman begins all coming one year after the other, I kind of feel like they figured out 
the weight of these characters and the balance of the story and kind of how to have to how to balance the heroes and the villains um and x-men x2 coming in the middle of that is uh is a really great example i agree like that scene just lives in my mind rent free um Mm -hmm. there was even a move in wonder woman 1984 that cheetah does that was kind of similar to something that well two things that nightcrawler does um in the X-Men 2 movie. So I'm just, you know, waiting for the high-res, you know, videos of these the Wonder Woman scene to drop so I can, you know, make a gif, like a cinematic parallel of it or something. But yeah, it's just, yeah, those the White House scenes in both of those movies are just very well done. Love it. Yeah, X2 certainly holds up um, by far the best of those uh, Brian Singer, the first Brian Singer trilogy of X-Men movies. And um, yeah, definitely a good time and, and some great sequences. So good call. We're going to close this out on a high, man. You're, you're an old pro at this. We were talking in between acts here about how you haven't done a whole lot of podcasting, but you know, you're bringing the goods. Look at that. Thank you. I mean, as you said, like it's becoming addictive. So I mean, anytime you need a guest, I am here. You're gonna be you're gonna be browsing uh, you're gonna be browsing sites for for new microphones next week. You watch exactly. That, that is episode 251 of the Matinee Cast, and I'm so thankful for Brittany for coming by. Come on back on Monday, January 25th, for episode 252. And uh, not quite sure what we'll be discussing yet. We might talk about pieces of a woman or we might talk about one night in miami uh we'll see how i just how i feel when we get to that week um britney can be found all over the place comic book debate geeks of color and the real roundup and of course uh britney's own um home site which i will link to in the show notes that collects links and uh to everything that she does um so just kind of keep an eye on britney and speaking of keeping an eye on britney if people want to follow you on twitter where can they find you uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brittany, B-R-I-T-A-N-Y underscore Murphs, M-U-R-P-H-S. Very cool. My site is thematinee.ca. For more audio content, you can go to thematinee.ca slash podcasting, and that'll get you set up. You can also find episodes on Spotify, Pocket Cast, Stitcher Radio, Blueberry, Apple. Everything gives you a uh, Google Play. Everything gives you ways to subscribe for um for free and get alerts when new episodes drop if you have a podcast platform of choice and my show is not there drop me a dime and i will make sure that it is there post haste feedback on wonder woman 84 or any of the movies that we talked about today can be left in the comment section of the site you can email ryan at the matinee.ca twitter i am matinee underscore ca or facebook.com slash dark matinee miss murphy any final thoughts before we call it a day no just Watch some superhero movies, even if you don't think that it's your thing. You might find one that speaks to you. I totally agree. For Brittany, I'm Ryan. We'll see you at the matinee.